Welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Um, with me today, as usual, is our friend Hugo Lindgren, who is our uh, producer and, and occasional co-host, uh, but also a, a friend of mine um, who really, I think, knows Washington and the house, what's happening on the Hill, as well as anyone, um, Lisa Quigley. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So just, just so that the audience knows that you really know what you're talking about, Give us the real quick sketch on, on your career. Yeah, I just came off um, 30 years, actually, on the House side. Um, and so I've been there to see the things that have been transformational, the things that have not been transformational. Um, and so watching now um, a very divided Congress um, move forward on a lot of interesting challenges. So um, I've, I have some substantive questions for you and, and some political questions. So I guess I'll start with the substance, which is, so there's a $3.5 trillion spending proposal um, that obviously some Democrats desperately want, others uh, are not supportive of. Um, within that, like any bill, you know, there's some good and some bad. Um, and I kind of, if, if this is the only major thing that Biden may end up passing in his four years, if my question is, what in that bill do you think is sort of structural change that is transformational and that, you know, he can point back to and say, this was meaningful as opposed to, you know, we funded this agency for the 87th consecutive year. Right, right. So I think it might be helpful to think a little bit about the Democrats being in charge of the, of the White House and in the, in the House and then basically in the Senate, although loss of one senator, um, you know, tanks any of the ambitions that Democrats have. But this is partly a result of not only COVID and the situation that we've found ourselves in as a country, but also a reaction to not much investment being made in the past four years under Trump, right? So there's a lot of pent up ambitions from Democrats to do a lot of things right away. <clears throat> and one of the things I thought would be interesting just before we sort of talk about you know, what's in there and what's transformational is there's a lot of talk about like millions, billions and trillions. And when I think about millions, billions and trillions, I think about it in terms of seconds. And just to give you an idea, a million seconds is 12 days. A billion seconds is 31 years. And a trillion seconds is 31,000 years, like back to prehistoric days. And when we're talking about what's in the Build Back Better plan, we're talking about trillions of dollars. Um, we already, because of COVID, have passed the CARES Act, um, passed um, a couple trillion dollars worth of additional COVID relief. And really the Build Back Better plan is a $7 trillion ambition of which about $2 trillion of that has already passed. It was the American Rescue Plan that passed in March of this year. And what's left then is the Build Back Better Act, which is also known as the Families Plan, which is about $3.5 trillion, and then the Infrastructure Plan, which is about $1.2 trillion. And really, the things that will be, if, if this was fully funded, this would be transformational. This would change so much of what we have come to know about uh, our American life, which I'm referring to falling down bridges and roads that have gone 
unaddressed for years. We're talking about children living in poverty. We are talking about not very much attention being paid to the climate crisis. And all you've needed is the last several weeks to understand you know, how much investment we need on that score. So if this is fully funded, it is truly transformational and really represents a couple of times more money than we invest to fund the whole federal government year to year. So just in terms of scale, that's what we're talking about. And if, if Pelosi came to you and said, okay, Lisa, uh, take all the stuff in the three and a half trillion and order it by priority so, I, so that whatever we end up passing, whether it's one and a half or 2.3 or whatever the number is, make sure we capture the most important stuff. What specifically do you like in the bill? Well, you know, so first of all, what we've done already, it's some, sometimes it's kind of hard to say, well, how will this be transformational? How will it change where we are today? But I would also suggest that if we hadn't done everything that had been done so far, the last year would have been characterized by massive unemployment, massive homelessness, massive hunger. So when it comes time to sort of figure out what are the priorities, all of these things kind of need to be addressed. I would say that if you looked at the issues of poor kids um, and the significant contribution here made to lowering the costs of, of child care, to uh, repairing schools, um, and particularly for child hunger, um, more meals in schools, more meals in the summer. We've come up with a plan during COVID that actually really works. And so doing those would be extremely important. We could get 9 million more children um, that could be fed in school, for example. Um, I really think that on the climate side, there's huge investments made in climate that include, um, you know, clean energy manufacturing and the goals and all the things that are accompanying cutting emissions by uh, by a half by 2030. Um, and I, I would say that the things that might be kind of left on the table at the end of the day might be some of the block grants for the local projects. You know, I was sort of reading through those and going, you know, does the federal government really need to be paying for LED light bulbs? You know, it seems to me like our ambitions are great and we should go for those greater ambitions. Um, and so you may end up seeing this be, you know, shaved down at some point by maybe, you know, getting rid of some of those things that are very, very particular to um, local jurisdictions. Um, but really, you're getting to a point where you could, in five years, see a country where you have way fewer poor children. Um, and, and really, their needs being met in, in schools that work. Um, and in, in, in homes that they can, you know, live in and thrive in um, and starting out with universal pre-K, which, you know, this would be part of the transformational change in this country. Yeah. So it seems to me that the advocates who want the whole three and a half trillion are most excited about the various components uh, of younger children. So child, child care provision from the bill, universal pre-K provision from the bill, school meal provisions in the bill. Like, if this all were to happen, what happens to sort of poorer people and children in this country? And like, if, if it works, how are things different and better in 10 or 20 years? 
Yeah. So I think, again, we have to already kind of say thank you, United States of America and taxpayers for the kind of commitment that was already made in this last 18 months when the whole country was kept afloat with the investments that were made because of COVID. So, you know, we have unemployment problems and we have um, hunger problems and we have um, issues about um, employment. But these would have been far more worse unless we've made these investments. So in some ways, what you can say already is like, look, this worked. Like we're not in the kind of dire situation that we would be in. And so really what you're talking about is sort of more of the same. Let me give you an example. Um, right now, um, if you are someone who makes uh, $75,000 a year or a couple that makes $150,000 a year, you are getting for the next year $300 a month per child. Um, and this can go to childcare costs, which are extraordinarily high for most families. Um, this could go for um, more nutritious meals in your household. Um, this is an incredible um, effort to really cut poverty in the United States, child poverty in the United States, by what most experts say is going to be 50%. I mean, we get excited in the policy world if there's an incremental change, but imagine cutting child poverty in half. That's pretty amazing. But it ends after a year. So if we were going to continue to make that kind of investment, the kinds of investments that are made by many European nations, by the way, we could really see us in a situation in a number of years where we have kids that have been really supported along the way, have been able to attend childcare um, programs, have been able to not be food insecure in their household. I mean, this is a pretty great vision um, for the state of um, kids in this country. So a skeptic may listen to everything you just said and said, okay, sure, Lisa, you know, we can always just give more money to programs and some of that will filter down and help people, but, you know, they'll still be in the same position in, in 10 years or 20 years and we'll never stop spending this. Um, what's the argument for how this actually changes people's lives where um, their kids won't need this kind of assistance from the government? Yeah, so I mean, I think that when you are investing in people that need it the most, right, um, that they're able then to um, be in school learning, they are not hungry, they are not having sort of behavioral issues, um, they are able to continue to sort of meet whatever their full potential might be. I mean, I think that our goal should be we try to move people from a situation where they're in generational poverty, right, to the next step. And I don't think anybody wants to see the poverty or um, or the, 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 the social issues in their community which now we see on, on, on both coasts in a lot of the major cities that we have a pretty severe, you know, um, home, homeless uh, problem. So what I would say is that you've got to make, there is no easy button, right? Like you have to invest in people, in in the areas where they have immediate need. And we already know that we stopped mass poverty and hunger over the last 18 months. Like this was an experiment that happened um, that we didn't ask for, but came in the form of COVID. And we've basically been able to keep people afloat. Now, that doesn't mean that there are more hungry people now than there were in 2019. 
there are, but it is not on a massive scale. So think what we could do if we were imagining that kind of investment over the next 10 years. And this bill, by the way, is it's a 10 year plan. And, and on hunger specifically, I'm about to pivot to the politics of all this in a second. But if, if you could guarantee that one thing passes or happens, whether it's something that's been proposed or something that you would create, what would it be? Well, I think that the hunger programs, whether it be in the form of, of SNAP or WIC or the um, National School Lunch Program, are th- these are tried and true. And we can actually see and monitor and count, right, um, the kind of investment that is made in those areas. But I also, I'm so wild about the child care tax credits because our uh, system has not really adjusted to the many, many decades now of women being in the workforce and sometimes single moms being in the workforce um, and really needing um, that assistance in making sure that their kids grow up um, you know, healthy and into productive um, citizens. And so I would say that those that are really investing in sort of those um, direct uh, uh, benefits to kids and families are, are the things that to me are sort of the bedrock of of this uh, of this act. All right, so let, let's turn to the politics here. One, what do you think will ultimately happen? And two, um, is this effectively the last win Biden gets before the House probably flips next year? Well, so I would say that, yes, this is a it, it's full of, of, of great ambition. And we all know that the big things get done in the first year of a presidency by the midterm everything is political and it's very, very difficult to move. So I do think that this is the last gasp, although I am an optimist and I am not ready to concede that the House will flip. I think we still have a ways to go there um, and a lot of work needs to be done despite um, the table being set um, in an unfortunate way in terms of redistricting. But I think that um, what is problematic over the next um, few months few months, because I think this is going to be a multi-month process, is that we not only have such a narrow majority in the House, but we really have uh, essentially, uh, you know, no, uh, we we have a majority in the Senate with the vote of uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. And so you really can't lose anybody. But if it was just that that was on the table, um, we would be figuring out sort of how are we going to put that together? The problem is, is that we're also facing a couple of other challenges. One is the government is not yet funded for 2022, just the normal funding that happens for, for the next fiscal year. And there's a deadline as of September 30th. Um, there's no way um, that we're going to, we, the Congress, is going to, to meet that. Um, and so there's going to have to be a what they call a continuing resolution to keep the government going until Congress can resolve how to fund the government. At the same time, Congress is going to have to increase the debt ceiling, which is a really unpopular vote to make. Nobody likes to do it. Um, but it also is a reflection of reality here where we are in a pretty um, uh, uh, pretty major way in terms of deficit spending as a result of COVID and as a result of these current ambitions. You know, most economists think that, look, we can pay it off over the years, right? We're going to be able to do this. But there is a lot of concern about moving forward on funding the government, uh, doing uh, the debt ceiling. And then, of course, the infrastructure bill, which is sort of separate from um, the $3.5 trillion sort of family part of the Build Back Better Act. So there's a lot of moving parts right now. 
You have um, Senator Manchin who's saying there should be a pause put on this process. Um, uh, Senator um, Sinema from Arizona has also indicated that she's not enthusiastic about $3.5 trillion. Um, in the House, I think they'll work through some of their problems. We only have a three-seat majority in the House. And there are um, you know, m- moderate Democrats who are fiscal hawks who are quite concerned about the price tag. I'm, I'm much less worried about the House, frankly, at this point than I am about the Senate. But these things also can change, as we know, uh, from day to day. And so our final question then, What's the spending number that that the Build Back Better bill ultimately? Yeah, so the you know the 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 progressives are saying, and Bernie Sanders has said, we've already compromised. You know, this is going to be three point five trillion, which that's their position. Um, I think Manchin is saying, you know, it, it would be more like you know one point five trillion. Um, I I think at the end of the day, we're going to be somewhere in the twos is where we're going to be. And but these are really then hard choices that are going to have to be made because you're talking about having to probably jettison about a third of what the ambitions are in this bill. And what are the what are the revenue enhancements and tax increases that pass to funding? Yeah, you know, it's funny. There's little uh, being said about that, right? The pay-fors. Um, you know, there's some talk about taxing corporations that buy back stock. There's some talk about raising taxes on multinational corporations and changes to the estate and capital gains taxes. But there's very little talk about how to pay for this, which I think is a strategic decision from the Democrats because they don't want to just say they don't want they want to talk about what's in this and really sell it and not really talk about how it's going to be paid for until the very end. Um, There are, you know, really well moneyed forces out there that are ready to defeat anything. Um, And if you uh, identify the pay fors, um, that's, you know, giving fuel um, to that kind of campaign to knock this thing down. So they're being um, very uncharacteristically quiet about how this is going to be funded. All right. Well, we will see. Lisa, will you come back on as this process moves forward? Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for joining us. Um, Now we'll return to our normal kind of Tuesday format, which is me and Hugo talking about things that we don't really understand. So, Hugo, uh, welcome back. Thank you. uh, That was uh, was a great conversation, Lisa. Um, uh, So there's there's obviously a big piece of Apple news, which we're going to get to in a second. But I want to ask you the less important piece of Apple news that I am more interested in, which is... um, do you think Apple will ever bring a full-fledged car to market? I just don't know why they would. I mean, so is Apple capable of doing it? Yeah, I, they probably are. But it seems to me that they operate in such higher margin businesses where either it's, it's pure software that they're developing and making money on or it's hardware, but hardware that is extremely uh, high-priced and uh, sought after. And I just, you know, the car business is a really, really tough business. So I'm not just sure why they would want to put all that effort uh, into it. Um, but I think the only way that they would come out, to, to my mind, with their own full-fledged car is if they come up with a design or something that is just so radically different in the way that the iPhone was so different than uh, other cell phones, um, that they can dominate the market. Uh, and I think that that's harder to do in a 130-year-old market like cars than, than it was in a brand new thing like yeah, I'd say you're right. But I mean, what's interesting is that they do seem to want to make a car. I mean, it's not like a massive sort of corporate priority by any means, but like they are spending money on it. They are, you know, it's 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 uh, it's 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 something that they they obviously are kind of fascinated. Yeah, by. The who, who knows, right? It, it, it could be purely um, that 
they need to show investors are doing something with all the cash they're sitting on. It could be that ultimately um, they've got ancillary things like Apple CarPlay that they really want to develop. And this just sort of fits into that kind of research. Uh, Apple is a little bit of an opaque kind of black box uh, when it comes to corporate sort of transparency. So um, if there's one company that may be doing one thing or saying one thing and doing another, it could be Apple. Right. Gotcha. So uh, now the, the, the thing that Apple was all over the news about was the lawsuit with, with Epic, the, the uh, video game maker um, over sort of app store kind of regulations and, and, and requirements that, that, that Apple uh, uh, stipulates. What, what's important about this, about this lawsuit and, and about the outcome? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's important because Apple does control a, a huge amount of the app market. The, the judge uh, ruled that it was not a monopolistic amount in the case of digital gaming. Uh, but nonetheless, Apple and iOS are obviously the Mr. Apple and, and Android are the two predominant players here. Um, and Apple currently charges a fee as much as 30% on anything you sell to a consumer on an app uh, over an iPhone or an iPad or something like that. Um, and that's a really, really high commission. Um, and so uh, Epic Games, which makes Fortnite, uh, pulled their product from Apple and sued Apple and said that Apple has a monopoly uh, on the market and it's using that monopoly to charge monopolistic-like prices. Um, and the judge basically sided with Apple. Uh, the judge said that um, she didn't know that 30% is necessarily um, you know, too high and it's just and she also didn't know that Apple's share of the market was necessarily monopolistic in the first place. Um, she did say that Apple can't prevent companies from telling uh, consumers when they're on an app on the iPhone or iPad that they can get the same product from the same uh, pr- provider cheaper in some other way you know, if you go to their website directly. So there's a little bit of a win for, for Epic. And I think some of the platforms like Spotify and Netflix liked it because um, – they can't. They would rather sell subscriptions, obviously, directly than have to pay Apple um, a commission. So a, a little bit of a win there. But o- overall, uh, on one hand, you know, Apple's kind of business model got upheld, which is really good for them. On the other hand, you know, the judge's ruling on what the law currently says. If the law were to change, either in the definition of, of antitrust or monopoly or anything else. Um, then Apple's position would have to change with it. So in the same way that, you know, Facebook is facing privacy legislation, antitrust prosecution, a lot of challenges around uh, whether Libra gets launched or in the same way that um, Google is facing both antitrust and privacy, you know, Apple's issue may be more around uh, monopolistic powers and behavior. Um, and do those rules get rewritten by the Congress? Do you does this come up? Uh, you know, when when you're talking to founders or or making uh, funding decisions for for the for the venture fund, uh, the difficulty of of companies dealing no. with Apple. It it it, it doesn't really. Um, I think a lot of the time we don't invest too much in CPG, you know, consumer product goods, right. uh, and that's really where this comes up the most. So, um, so not so much for us, but, you know, as listeners know, we're working on this tele-religion platform called Exalt, and John Mendez, who's the CEO, and I have been talking about, you know, what would it mean if people are mainly getting the app through the App Store at Apple, um, and then we have to take 30% uh, of all revenue and kick it back to Apple. That would really hurt our margin significantly. Um, so f- for us, you know, 
this is a win because we think that we can get people um, off to, to make the purchases off of Apple um, and we can save some money that way. Gavin Newsom's Day of Reckoning is uh, this week. It's, I guess people will be listening to this on Tuesday, September 14th, which is when the vote is. Um, a little more than a month ago, it looked like he was in kind of serious trouble. The, uh, the prediction markets indicated a 34% chance of, of the recall succeeding. It's now sunk to 8%. Did did Gavin Newsom save himself or did, was there just sort of regression to the mean? Did the kind of like trend just kind of run its course? Um, what, what what happened here? I think it's a combination of one, it's just not like winning an election. This is like by the skin of your teeth preventing the worst possible thing that could happen to you from happening, right? So it's not a victory for Newsom. It's the avoidance of being a historically failed governor. You know, there's a lot more money on the Democratic side uh, than on the Republican side in a place like California. And once the impact of that money starts to really hit in terms of TV and mail and everything else, digital, you know, it starts to it starts to add up. And so he's benefiting from that, as well as people like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and others, you know, coming to the state um, to campaign with him. And the third part is. Larry Elder, who is the highest polling Republican uh, in the recall question, is a very, very right-wing conservative Donald Trump-like figure. And I think the more and more that they're able to show that to the voters, the more that scares people. And then in California, you have the additional complication of Dianne Feinstein is 88 years old, um, very sick with dementia. And uh, many people have said that she needs to step down uh, or she might not even live that much longer. So if she did have to step down and Elder were governor, he would obviously appoint a conservative Republican to fill her seat. Um, and that would shift balance in the, in the U.S. Senate, you know, over to the Republicans. So I think California voters have sort of realized all of this. And that's why Newsom will get through. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the polling, a couple came out over the weekend. You know, he's got basically 58, 42 50, the worst kind of 55, 45, the best is maybe 62, 38. So, you know, he, he's going to win and the recall is not going to happen based on the data. Um, but, you know, it's it's not by a landslide. Right, right. So you sound like you're still pretty bearish on Gavin Newsom. I mean, I just this is like, you know, this, this is like, for example, you know, being indicted for something and then sort of on the most serious count, you know, getting off with a hung jury or something like that. Like, yeah, you're not going to jail. That's the thing you care about the most. Gavin Newsom will be able to continue walking to the governor's office. Um, but but at the same time, it's pretty embarrassing and it means you screwed up somewhere along the way. Right. Um, you sent me this pretty interesting article from the Washington Post on a subject we've been touching on uh, kind of a lot over the last six months or so. Um, the, the premise of the article was that the, the abortion problem or the abortion law, passage of the abortion law in Texas, um, is going to is going to make the state a, a less appealing place uh, for tech workers to 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 locate. Um, you know, like a lot of articles that way, it, it, it was mostly speculation. Um, you know, I think they had one woman in there who talked about how she was going to move to New York or something. But it's it's it's, you know, something less of than a, a you know, it's 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 not an imminent catastrophe in that regard. What was interesting about the article to you? What 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 caught your attention about really caught my attention was the problem is that there seems to be no great place to live, right? So the, the reason why Gavin Newsom is facing a recall in California is that people in California are unhappy with his leadership and unhappy at the way things are going. So California, right. which is always the dream state, um, has had a lot of population 
uh, leaving and going to places like Texas or Florida. And we've talked about that a lot on, on this podcast over time. So uh, places like California have incredibly high taxes, incredibly burdensome regulations. Um, you start to see really significant quality of life problems like homelessness, um, crime going way up, natural disasters like, you know, wildfires and earthquakes. So California is a mess, but then you go to Texas and you've got uh, extreme heat and you've got now the inability for a woman to basically get an abortion and people can carry guns wherever they want and hide them wherever they want. And so you think culturally that may not be where, you know, a place that I want to live. Um, you pivot to a place like New York, not the exact same problems as California, but but just as expensive quality of life as having the same types of challenges, plus the weather stinks here. And so, you know, you, you do get to that question of like, do you think the weather stinks in New York? You just say that like as if it's just, I mean, the spring and the fall in New York are like beautiful. What's yeah, beautiful? but December, January, February, March, and even April uh, can be pretty miserable. So to me, that's 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 enough. Um, just just <laughs> say you're certainly not living in a climate with good weather. You're living in a climate with occasional good weather. So, you know, where do you go, right? You know, a place like Chicago might be a, a little less insane than, than New York or L.A., but it's it's equally violent, or if not more so. Um, so it's just, I don't know that there's any one spot where if someone said, I want kind of progressive political values, but relatively low taxes, a business-friendly environment, good weather, uh, and high quality of life, I, I just don't know that any place actually checks that box. Europe, London. Yeah, although here's the thing. It's, it's always easier to take the place that you don't really know uh, and ascribe whatever you want to ascribe to. It's like when you go on vacation, you're like, oh, wouldn't it be awesome if I lived in Hawaii? But then once you live in Hawaii, you still have to go to the gym and the dry cleaners and the dentist and, and like real life, wherever you are, reasserts itself, which means it's, it's, it's usually not the grass is quite as greener as you think. So London would have um, lower crime. That's right. Uh, taxes, I guess, are not as bad as they would have been had they stayed, and regulation had they stayed in the EU. Uh, more progressive policies uh, around things like abortion. Um, however, um, they do have also kind of crappy New York-like weather, um, and it, it's still a monarchy. Um, so uh, you put all those quasi-monarchies. So you put all that together. Yeah, you know, in the, in the absence of knowing better, London does sound like a better option. But I suspect that people who live there can come up with a very long list of problems. For I think maybe we should start doing our firewall best cities to live in kind of ranking, you know, like with, with your criteria there. Um, so what, what would you write? I mean, obviously, you and I still pick New York because we both live here by choice. Right. Right. Um, but what would so I'll give you give, give me five cities globally or give me five cities. If I said, OK, Hugo, you got to leave New York by sundown. These are the cities that you, you know, what what five cities will you move to? What's your okay. list? I would say Boston, Nashville. Um, I, I'm sort of curious about like like something like Omaha or Tulsa, I have to say. Um, I mean, I don't know if I'm ready to move there since I've never been to either place. But there's something that feels appealing about that. And I would still live in Los Angeles. I mean, I, I don't I don't have uh, uh, I don't have the, the, the kind of like yearning for it that I did at one point in my life. But but um, but I, 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 I think you could still be you know, pretty happy there. What, what, what about you? I mean, same Los Angeles would definitely be the other place that I would live. And I understand that they have serial killers and wildfires and really high taxes and all kinds of other problems, but uh, I, I still like it anyway. I could certainly see a world where maybe at one point in my life I can spend 
you know, those winter months uh, in L.A. Um, you know, I've always, always loved New Orleans. So I, I always think I could live there. Uh, with that said, I have a friend who was from there. And I asked her why she didn't stay and why she, you know, built her career in D.C. and New York instead. And she said, everyone I know in New Orleans is one of two things, a functioning alcoholic or a non-functioning alcoholic. <laughs> uh, and I'm not sure if that extends beyond her particular, you know, uh, family and friends there. Uh, but I, I do think that, that there's definitely some, some risk to being there. You know, London, I've always thought would be um, a, a great place to live. So I, I would try that. Right. Uh, you know, uh, Harper and Abby and I lived when she was a baby in, in, in Mexico City, and we really liked that. So if it were safe enough. But, you know, either way, very quickly, you're getting back into these trade-offs and problems. Um, and so, you know, the answer, obviously, is that no place is perfect. And really, you know, is there an opportunity if a place were to be politically progressive, but not overwhelmingly so, so the taxes and regulations are out of control? Um, willing to enforce the law enough to have decent quality of life, have decent weather, um, but not do crazy shit like ban abortion. Um, is there a place like that that could really spike in growth as a result? Um, you know, you would think some of those cities like Nashville that you said maybe could, but the Tennessee legislature is, is just as capable of passing something like the Texas legislature did. So yeah. I, I think it's really, and Miami, which a lot of people have moved to and is obviously a pretty progressive place, um, you know, DeSantis, who's the governor of, California, of Florida, is looking at a lot of the same laws. So, so there's no place that's perfect um, right now, which means I would still stick it out here in New York. Um, but, you know, uh, if, if the quality of life here gets worse and worse and the crime gets worse and worse and the taxes get higher and higher, um, there's a point where you could question living here, too. Yeah. Uh, we have two more little things we're going to hit. Well, they're not that little, but uh, two more subjects. Um, one is the um, Basketball Hall of Fame. Um, 16 inductees this year. I think it's 16. Um, it's a big group. Um, and there was a little activity on a, on a, on a text group that Bradley and I are part of about, um, whether all these guys deserve to, whether these are just pretty good players who, um, are being honored sort of above and beyond their actual sort of contributions to the game. Um, what, what's your position? It, it, did this list look a little, uh, a little bloated? A little to you? I mean, there were some people on there obviously who were, you know, in, in, clear the, the, the Paul Pierce's of the world who were clear choices but you know Ben Wallace and Tony Kukoc very good players good careers they made some all-star teams they won some titles um, but you know they belong uh, firmly in the hall of very good players not the hall of fame and, and this is true whether it's basketball or baseball or any other sport which is when you keep watering it down so that you don't hurt anyone's feelings and so that um, you have inductees every year and everything else. Um, you do so at the risk of kind of destroying the underlying kind of credibility of the institution in the first place. And, and I would just say that as it gets easier and easier to get into these institutions, at least for me, I think about them less. I'm interested in them less and I think they have less significance. So I, I get why the short term value of more inductees is easier and better. Um, but I do think all of these places are at risk. Uh, of ultimately undermining themselves. Have you ever been to the Basketball Hall of Fame? I've driven by it twice now. That, does, that doesn't um, help, Bradley. That doesn't no, no, help. It's interesting. Once was back in the late 90s. Harper and I took a vacation um, in and around New England. That's we a wedding in Connecticut. We went to Providence. We went to Boston because, you know, I was working at the Parks Department at the time. She was, I think, in MoMA. And, like, that was the only trip we could afford was to just kind of drive around and, 
and stay in inexpensive places. And it was a great trip. And on the way home, we passed through Springfield, Massachusetts. We saw it. I said, oh, we got to go. And it was like three in the afternoon. And I think it closed at four or four thirty. And it was like 20 or 25 bucks to get in, something like that. And we decided it wasn't worth the money for the amount of time that was uh, remaining. You know what? It's worth the money there if you go. It's it's not, the, I guess, the most politically correct thing anymore. But um, uh, there is Artist Gilmore's uh, fur coat. He had a uh, a ankle length fur coat, and they have you it. You get to try it on, or you just have to. Look no, you don't get to try it on. You don't get to try it on. <laughs> uh, but uh, and then during COVID, we uh, drove up to Vermont to ski with the kids and some friends at, at Sugarbush Mountain, and then on the way home. We drove right past the Basketball Hall of Fame. Um, I think I would have been less deterred by the um, by the price at this point, but I think having kids and a dog in the back seat, we've been driving for hours and hours already, and I don't want to go. It wasn't happening. Um, we have been to the Baseball Hall of Fame, which is lovely and wonderful, um, and they do let you try an artist skill more for a coat. <laughs> yeah, one there too. Um, that's how. That's so random. Um, so last last question. Um, you, you started your your the fall semester of your class at, uh, at the Columbia Business School, which is it's on disruption. Um, why don't you just tell? I, I mean, it's come up once or twice before, but why don't you just tell the listeners what your class is about? Then I have one sort of follow up question after. Yeah, that. sure. So so the class is called the Politics and Economics of Digital Disruption, um, and over the course of the semester. We talk about a lot of what we talk about here on this podcast, which is the regulation of technology. How should it work? You know, what direction should you lean in substantively, politically? But far more important, it's really understanding why do people run for office? Why do they desperately to stay in office? What motivates their thinking? What motivates their decisions? How do you get them to do what you need them to do? Uh, and in the case of the class, we give each uh, group, we divided the class up into six groups, a topic like flying cars or autonomous trucks or psychedelic drugs or whatever it is, something that is sort of a, a little more out of the ordinary. Say, okay, build a campaign to legalize this thing in these specific states. Um, and they've got to do everything for figuring out the lobbying, the polling, the earned media, the social media, paid media, grassroots, opposition research. They've got to hold press conferences. They've got to write legislation. They've got to present it in committee to actual elected officials that we'll bring into the class. Um, and so the idea is to really have them live through the process of what it's like to take this new kind of technology and, and take something that, that hasn't been legal and make it legal. Um, and so that's that's the class. Uh, we meet once a week uh, up at Columbia and it's uh, did it last semester and it was fun or last year and uh, we're trying it again. Now, how do you have time for this? Uh, I mean, in addition to running uh, uh, this podcast, um, <laughs> You uh, you have you have a, a firm that does just an incredible array of things. You have the um, the venture stuff. You have the strategy stuff. You have the philanthropy. Um, you've taken on these other projects um, like the SPAC. Um, you have the the bookstore. Um, you do a fair amount of writing. Um, what's the what's the uh, I guess what's the what's this little campaign to make mobile voting possible. And, oh, you know, oh, right. Mobile voting. I, you, I, 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 for some reason, I believe that mobile voting. It's, you know, so I asked Hugo to ask me this question. Uh, <laughs> and the reason why I asked Hugo to ask me this question is I feel like I've been getting it a lot uh, privately from people, uh, a little bit from my students as well. And, and so thought maybe it'd be helpful just to address it a little more broadly. 
And, and I think to me, in a way, if you invest on the front end in building the right infrastructure and the right culture, and you are able to make enough money to be able to keep reinvesting in the things that you care about, whether it's a business line or a cause or something like a bookstore or whatever else, um, and you have the risk tolerance to do so, you can really do a lot of things at scale at the same time, right? So um, you're right. We've got a venture capital fund, a consulting firm. We have a, an active SPAC. We're incubating tele-religion, voting, hunger, teaching, the bookstore, the column, the podcast, the Gotham Book Prize, and so on. But in every one of those cases, there are talented people who are my partners or my employees who really do and run a lot of it on a day-to-day basis. And my job is to help come up with interesting ideas that I think that there's a, a societal need for or a marketplace for, opportunity for, um, figure out how it's going to look and how it's going to work, um, build the team, invest the resources and capital so that they have what they need to get going, um, and then kind of help move it along. And, and I'm obviously you know heavily involved uh, in, in what go, in what happens from there, and something with the venture fund, you know, I really am on a minute by minute basis involved. Um, but but overall, I, I do think that if if you have really talented people and you have a culture that really values them and pays them well and treats them well and gives them autonomy and gives them the ability to come up with big ideas and to try them out, and so if those talented people want to stay and they're invested in the underlying goal and cause. Um, and, and they really want to be there, um, and you've got capital and a high risk tolerance, I think you can do a lot of things at once. Uh, and, and we are, and, and if you look at the results of each of them, I'd argue the vast majority of them are, are pretty successful. So, um, you know, other people, if you're sort of a track, you have a short attention span like I do, and you say, hey, what would really be great for my career one day is if I could do a mix of things. So things that are um, philanthropic, things that are creative, things that are intellectually interesting, uh, things that can make a lot of money, uh, whatever it is, uh, you can do lots of different things at the same time if you create the right infrastructure uh, to, to do so. And so like, while I don't couldn't have told you 2011 or 12 or 13 that we'd have this list of, of stuff that we're doing right now, I could have told you, hey, we are trying to build out a culture and out a team and a skill set um, that can ultimately apply to lots of different things at the same time. Um, and in my my world, it's sort of the monetization of politics in, in one form or another. It takes a lot of different forms. But whatever your area is, um, you, you can do that. And so, you know, I, I think oftentimes you hear advice like stick to what you know or focus or do one thing at a time or whatever it is. Um, and I know that that's the conventional wisdom, but it's it's not my personality. I think it's not the personality of a lot of other people, too. Um, and I don't think it has to be the conventional wisdom. I think you can do a lot of things at once uh, and do them successfully, uh, provided that you put the right work in on the front end. Right. Well, that's a good spot to leave it for the week. Um, and uh, we'll be back in a couple of days with another another episode. And um, thanks a lot, Bradley. Sounds good. Thanks, Hugo. Thanks, Hugo.